Good morning, Well of Life, and uh, all those that are joining in with us from perhaps around the city or around the world. It is good to be with you in the virtual way again today. We really are missing having everyone in our auditorium. Um, yeah, I miss uh, Eugenia Shobi sitting there or deep seconded in the back corner of there or the, the cups of coffee that we drink together. But we really want to use this time as productively as possible within the constraints that we do have. And uh, in the wonderful Psalm 121, the one that starts, where does my help come from? Um, in verse 4, we're told that God never sleeps nor slumbers. God's ever at work. There's, there's never a moment where he's, he's under lockdown and he's just taking a break and just resting and doing nothing. And uh, so I think it's fair for us to ask, what is God doing in this time? Of course, God does work on a macro level. He raises up kingdoms and pulls them down. But the great work of the kingdom is what God does in the territory of men and women's hearts. And it makes very little difference in the kingdom whether, whether Dow Jones Industrial Index or the Nikkei is sitting at the end of the crisis or whether autocracies thrive and democracies reel under the pressure of what's going on around us. At the end of the day, God uses all of those, good or bad, to accomplish His purpose. And that purpose is actually to win the hearts of men and women, to bring them into salvation through the finished work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And for those that belong to Him, to continue to transform them to be more and more like His Son, Jesus. I was reading in 2 Corinthians 4 this week as Paul um, speaks about the fact that life on earth, this life that we're living here, is just a part of a journey into something much greater and actually much more real than what we perceive now. And in verses 16 to 18, he says this, Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Isn't that beautiful? For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. And uh, Paul knew something about troubles. He's not underestimating what it is that I'm facing or you facing or we're facing. Our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things that we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. And the title of my preach this morning is The Way Everlasting. And uh, it goes back to Psalm 139. And um, I want to look this morning at what God's doing inside of us, because I think that what happens inside of us is much more important than even what is happening in the kingdoms and the governments, etc., of the world around us. This week in my devotion, I spoke about the fact, um, I spoke about our hearts as well. I spoke about the fact that God wants our hearts uncluttered. And I, and you know, our hearts can become cluttered by ungodly desires and attitudes and fears that fill it up and, and leave no room for the Word of God. But I began to reflect on the fact that actually we can even clutter our heart up with the Word of God. We can get so much seed that comes to us week after week and day after day as we go to the Word. But if we never plant the seed and we never water the seed, then it just begins to accumulate in our heart. And we just add more seed to the pile of seed that we already have. And so that we can no longer receive any more when God's speaking. And as I was reflecting on what I preached last week, I, thought, Lord, I felt like the Lord saying, don't just jump on to the next thing. Press this home. Massage it in. Um, help the, us as a body of believers to meditate on what God is saying. And so that's where I'm going to go today. I'm going to continue from where I finished off last week in the last few verses of Psalm 139, that the Lord would take this word and plant it in our hearts and water it so that the ministry of the Holy Spirit can produce the life that's needed in us. 
In verse 23 and 24 from the New Living Translation, David prays and he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends me and lead me on the way everlasting or the path of everlasting life. The truth is that none of us are too excited to come under that sort of scrutiny. And uh, sometimes it, it might feel like like opening up your life is like opening up Pandora's box. We, you just don't know what you're going to get when you begin to uncover things, perhaps hurts that have been hidden away there or um, uh, sins or attitudes that, that, that you've buried deep enough in your life. What, what, what will come of opening it up? And I thought as I was preparing this of, the, of somebody who might be listening today, a man who's in an adulterous relationship. Um, and if he's a believer, or frankly, even if he's not a believer, he knows that this is wrong. But he thinks to himself, perhaps, how much worse it would be if I were to bring it into the light and confess it. Not only would I still remain trapped to this lust that has gripped my life, but I would find myself now facing rejection and loss. Maybe my marriage would come to an end. Maybe I would, my reputation would be completely damaged. And, and so maybe the best thing that I can do for myself if, I've, if there's a sin in my heart and there's a sin in my life is actually to just keep it covered up. And that actually is our natural instinct. Deny, deny, deny. Cover up, cover up, cover up. Blame shift, rationalize, spiritualize our action. And it's tragic, but it's the condition of the human heart that is proved again and again and again. There's a thousand athletes that have cheated by taking drugs to help them to excel in the sport. And when they were confronted by it, their first reaction is to deny that have taken uh, money so that they throw games or throw boxing matches and when they're confronted by it their first action is to deny it and it's not just limited to the athletes we see it in business we see it in marriage we see it in churches and we see it even in church leaders and sadly i could quote the case of hundreds of eminent church leaders that have fallen into sin into sexual sin or financial sin or the abuse of power and they've only dealt with it when, it, when the evidence has become undeniable and there's nowhere left for them to go there's a man who's, who's an article I was reading um, a couple of weeks ago, and he runs workshops to help people deal with sexual sin that they caught in. And he says at least half of those that come to him are either pastors or missionaries. And then he said this, which I think is tragic. He says, in the thousands of cases that I've counseled, only 1% of the men have come to us voluntarily and preemptively. 99% of the men were caught. And we see that um, same attitude in, in Saul in one Samuel 15, when he's confronted by the prophet Samuel for not carrying out God's sacred command to completely destroy the Malachites. That meant that you don't keep the best cows or the best sheep and this carpet and that piece of jewelry. Everything was destroyed and or devoted to the Lord. And Samuel arrives and confronts Saul with this. And Saul immediately says, I have carried out the Lord's commands. He just lies, bald face. And in verse 14, Samuel says, what then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that are here? See, our sin catches up with us. It, it always is around us. Um, but unless we're caught in it, we actually find ourselves unwilling to bring it before the Lord and allow Him to deal with it redemptively. Almost 14 years ago, I can remember watching a news report and uh, the, the TV cameras and the, the crews ran up and they were knocking on the window, uh, the, the car window of a of a man who I hadn't heard about up to that point, and his name was Ted Haggard. And he was a very influential, it turned out, church leader in the nation. And they were asking him his um, response to some quite serious allegations of sexual immorality. 
and he was absolutely emphatic in his denial that anything had taken place. And, and I, I remember actually feeling quite sad for the guy that these ridiculous accusations, and, and they were awful accusations, were being brought against him. Anyway, it turned out they were true. And the evidence came out. It was overwhelming. And finally, he confessed and he stepped down from the 14,000 strong church that he was leading. And part of the process was he wrote a letter that was read to the church. And there's a, there's a part of this that is really helpful and instructive to us as we process this. Ted Haggard in his letter says, There is a part of my life that is so repulsive and dark that I've been warring against it all my adult life. For extended periods of time, I would enjoy victory and rejoice in freedom. Then from time to time, the dirt that I thought was gone would resurface, and I would find myself thinking thoughts and experiencing desires that were contrary to everything I believe and teach. Through the years, I've sought assistance in a variety of ways, with none of them proving to be effective in me. Listen to this. Then because of pride, I began deceiving those I loved the most, because I didn't want to hurt or disappoint them. The public person I was wasn't a lie. It was just incomplete. When I stopped communicating about my problems, the darkness increased and finally dominated me. And as a result, I did things that were contrary to everything that I believe. It's understandable, perhaps, this tendency to want to hide our sin. But again, we have to listen to the warning that Hagar gives us. When I stopped communicating about my problems, when I stopped allowing God to bring my sin to the surface so that I could deal with it again and again, however many times it needs to be dealt with, the darkness increased and finally dominated me. When King Saul was confronted by Samuel. The right response was repentance and confession. But Paul, just he pulled out every trick in the book. From verse 13 to 25, we see him blaming other people, over-spiritualizing what he had done, this and the next thing. And, um, and the consequences of that unconfessed sin of Paul, the fact that he, he was unwilling when he was confronted by the prophet to actually repent of it, um, actually are played out before our eyes as well from um, verses 28 onwards over the next couple of chapters. Remember, Hagar's words, when I stopped communicating about my problems, when I started hiding and covering up my sin, the darkness increased and finally dominated me. I love um, Dallas Willard's words when he says that there is nothing that cannot be redeemed when it's put into the hands of the living God. Friends, it doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what sin we've committed. The blood of Jesus is enough. The worst thing that we can do is try and cover up and hide our sin from the Lord. One of the, one of the, the things that plays out is that the enemy starts to rob us when we don't allow God into every area of our lives. In 1 Samuel 15 and 28, we see that Saul lost his inheritance. That It says the Lord... Samuel speaking again, says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors. In verse 31, we see that Saul gets what he wants. Sometimes the consequence of our sin is that we get what we want and we find out that it's wholly unsatisfactory. Uh, Saul said to Samuel, Just please just honor me before the people and, and come up and worship me with me. Um, and uh, for Saul, the, the, the honor of the people was the most important thing. It was the thing that he desired the most. And so God gave it to him. And Saul found out that that thing didn't satisfy him at all. And how many stories have we heard of people that have lied and cheated their way to get to a prize that seemed so paramount to them in their lives, but in the end turned out to be utterly hollow and unsatisfying. In 16 and verse 14, we see that God's intimate presence is forfeited. And uh, when we have sin in our lives that we won't deal with, 
and we won't allow the Holy Spirit to come and um, deal with in our lives. Gone is the tender intimacy between child and father. And injected into this relationship is shame and hiding. And it's not God that pulls away from us. It's us because of the sin that pulls away from the Father. Also in verse 14, we see that we give the devil a foothold to torment us. And that was part of, I'm sure, what Haggard was going through. That through sickness and depression, demonic activity in our lives, we are tormented instead of living with the peace and the joy that God intends for every believer. And finally in verse 11 of chapter 17, we see that we are powerless against the enemy. Saul, this warrior of a king, was hiding in his tent when Goliath would come out. And because he was caught in sin, the whole nation of Israel was shaking in their boots when confronted by Goliath. What a contrast to David who steps out to bring down the Goliath, and which we are intended to bring down as well. How many enemies are standing because we are powerless uh, because of undealt with sin in our lives? What a contrast to David who prays, Search me, O God, and, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends me and lead me along the path of everlasting life. David was a, was a shepherd as a, when he was a boy. And somehow in those fields, and I, I wonder how Jesse, his father, raised him. And I don't, we don't know too much about David's mom or even his grandparents or what the spiritual environment was like. But somehow something had been planted in David. And in the fields as he watched with the sheep and as he, as he fought against the lions and, and the bear that would, um, that would try and take the sheep, David became a warrior, but he became a worshiper as well. And this worship warrior that became king grew in his knowledge and his understanding of God in such a profound way and an experiential way that I think he knew God probably more than many men and women before him and since him have ever had the privilege of coming to know him. And David said in that psalm, as I taught last week, that God is a safe place for us to come and open our lives up to him. In, uh, in verse 10 of Psalm 139, it says this, it says that God, wherever we end up, wherever we, wherever we are, God is with us. And it says that His hand is there to guide us and His strength is there to support us. It's amazing that God doesn't distance Himself from us because of our sin. We often think that way, that actually when we sin, God comes running out the room. It's actually us that are running away from God. When, when we were full of sin, it says in John chapter 3 and verse 16, that God so loved us that He sent His only Son. Jesus took on um, humanity to come to be with us in the midst of our sin. In John 1.14, it says that again, it says that he became human and made his home among us. God's not scared of our sin. He's not someone that feigns, faints when he sees wickedness. He doesn't have to be revived with smelling salts or have somebody wave their hanky over them. God triumphs over sin and wickedness. And one day he will actually judge it all and eradicate it completely from the created universe. But that is both the glory and the problem for us, because that what we actually deserve because of our sin and our wickedness is eternal separation from God. And to be eternally separated from God is to be in eternal conscious suffering. And so God in Christ made a way for us to be saved. 
He wants all people through faith to receive the forgiveness that Christ has won for us in his death and his resurrection on the cross. In, see, God's nearness, God's presence is always redemptive. When somebody who's caught in sin comes into a meeting where God is present, it shouldn't make them feel like they want to hide and run away. They, they should feel like they're drawn towards God because he is redemptive, redemptive and everything he does towards us is redemptive. Before Jesus went back to the Father after his resurrection, he said in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. And obviously he was speaking about the Holy Spirit. And even now the Holy Spirit is present with us. And he carries on that work of God that David spoke about in Psalm 139. He guides us with his hand and he supports us with his strength. I remember R.T. Kendall speaking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he says he's like, a, he's like Google Maps. What a strange image that is. But he says when, when you're driving along the road and you take the wrong turn off, Google Maps says, maybe says, you know, stay on the road for the next three kilometers and instead you take the off-ramp. Google Maps doesn't go, what the heck are you doing? What an idiot you are. I can't believe that you turned off too soon like that. I'm not going to help you now to get your way back. Google Maps doesn't do that to us. It doesn't sit, and the Holy Spirit doesn't sit like a sulky navigator in the seat kind of going, well, if you're not going to follow my directions, I'm... I'm not even going to help you. Google Map just recalculates. Just says, as soon as you can, take a U-turn and go back. Get back onto the highway again. And it's the same in the Holy Spirit. His hand is there to guide us wherever we are. Whatever mistakes we've made, whatever sin we find ourselves caught in, what a wonder it is to know is that the Holy Spirit is not trying to paralyze us with condemnation and fear. He doesn't want us to park our car on the side of the road and just sit there weeping. He doesn't want us to drive off and continue for hundreds of kilometers in the wrong direction. There and then, he says, just slow down. As soon as you can, do a U-turn. Head back to the highway and get back onto what David calls the path of everlasting life. And when we're too weak to do that, when, when we think, well, I don't, I don't even have a clue how to get back to that freeway again. Yeah, he's there with his strength to support us. And I kind of have this picture of somebody crumpled down on the side of the road with no energy to get back. And, and the Holy Spirit comes and he lifts you up and he lets you lean upon him. And he walks with you as you hobbling at first to bring you back to that path of everlasting life. And his grace and his love and his, as we, uh, uh, is all over us as we begin that, that journey until eventually we're running again on this path. And so David tells us that God is a safe place. And he asks us, he implores us to open up our lives and expose our lives to God that he might do his work inside of us. And we have to remember that David wasn't a goody two-shoes. He had given himself to some serious sin. He was an adulterer and a murderer. And he had a lot to lose. He was the king of Israel. To confess this might put him in a place where, um, of such vulnerability that he might have lost the kingdom. Um, he might have lost his reputation. What would people think of him? And yet for David, he considered the loss of intimacy with God and the loss of the peace and joy to be a greater loss than any of the other losses that he could face. And friends, I hope you realize that too. That whatever you're holding on to, whatever you're fearing you might lose in opening your life up to the Spirit of God, it doesn't compare to the intimacy of your relationship with God and the peace and the joy that flows from God into your life. And when David was confronted by his prophet, God sent Nathan to speak to him. He didn't make any excuses. He didn't try and rationalize it or shift the blame onto somebody else for what he had done. David in, one, in 2 Samuel 12, 13 just said this, I have sinned against the Lord. That's his response to the prophet. 
And in one of the greatest acts of confession in Psalm 51, David takes it further in verses 3 and 4. And he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I, I can't deny it, says David. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And he said, like, I, I deserve, I deserve to be judged. But then David goes on and he appeals to the love and the mercy of God that he might be forgiven and that he might be washed as white as snow. You see, David understood that until he dealt with his sin, he was on a side road of torment and deficit. And only through repentance could he get back onto the highway of God's blessing and purpose again. In Jeremiah 18 verse 15, God speaks through another prophet and says, But my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. They make them stumble in their ways in the ancient roads and to walk into side roads, not on the highway. And when David prays in Psalm 139 verse 24, see if there be any grievous way in me or point out anything inside me that offends you. That word way is in the Hebrew is the word derek. And I'm never going to think of somebody called Derek the same way again because that word literally means path or road. And he says, in that same verse, it is then, and lead me in the way everlasting. And it's the same word. And so he's saying, take me off this grievous road or this grievous path and put me on the everlasting path or the everlasting road. Take me off the side road that Jeremiah spoke about and put me on the highway again of God's blessing. Eternal life, friends. Eternal life is not something we get one day when we die. So as if to say now we, we, we live with with, with these limitations, but hopefully one day we'll have eternal life. Eternal life, when we come to Christ, is ours there and then. And uh, when, we, um, when we are following Christ, we are on the way everlasting. It's in your mind, I want you to kind of see this road that goes out before you, and it's connected. There's a veil, which is just a veil of death, and you can't see through it clearly, but you know the road continues past that through all eternity. And all of the, the promises and the blessings and the wonder of heaven are on the same road that we're already on. I don't know if you ever played electric touch when you were at school or a young kid. And if you were holding on to John's hand and then you touched somebody else, it was like John touching them. And on this path or this road of everlasting life that is connected to heaven, the blessings of God flow backwards towards us. And so righteousness flows backwards towards us. Peace flows backwards towards us. Joy flows backwards towards us. Healing flows backwards towards us. Provision flows backwards towards us. But there isn't the flow of God when we're on that side road. And so God invites us, no matter what we've done, no matter what sin that we've committed, to get off those other roads. Why should Christians be bedeviled by evil and anxiety and fake happiness that, leaps, that leaves us feeling empty, fearful, and disgusted? Too often Christians find themselves stuck on that side road like the Israelites wandering around for 40 years around the mountain, saying, God, where is the blessings and the promises that you've, path, path, that you've promised me? And we need to open our lives up to the work of the Holy Spirit that he can come and deal with everything inside us that is offensive to the Lord. I want to finish this morning by all of us actually praying this prayer together. And Kira will make sure that it's on the screen now. And so won't you, wherever you are, won't you just close your eyes? Oh, actually, you're going to need to read the prayer, so you can't close your eyes. Won't you um, just... Prepare your heart. Maybe you want to stand. Maybe you want to kneel. Maybe you want to stay sitting where you are. And I want us to pray this prayer together. And then I'll pray after that. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any, any grievous way in me. 
and lead me in the way everlasting. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you this morning that um, the blood of Christ is enough. I want to thank you that you never made us to be trapped in sin. And that uh, everything that you've done towards us, Lord, from the beginning of time until when time will be wrapped up, is intended to fulfill your redemptive purpose of setting your people free. As your word says, you are not willing that any should perish. And I pray for those that are watching this preach this morning that are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord God, that they would get onto the, the path of everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ as they trust in his finished work, as they put their trust in the truth that Christ um, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross in their place, bearing not only their sin, but the punishment that their sin deserved. And that in his resurrection, Lord, you vindicated him and showed that his sacrifice was sufficient for us and so that we too can share in eternal life. And I pray that as they, um, even with us now, break bread, as they take the bread, which is the body of Christ, and the cup of the new covenant in the blood of Christ, that they would enter into this this, uh, saving relationship with Christ, receiving Him as their Lord and their Savior. And for those that are Christ followers, Lord, but that have allowed sin to remain covered up in their lives, oh God, whether it's something small or something large, that in this season now you have your finger on. Lord, we know you don't, by your grace, deal with everything all at once. But those things that you're dealing with right now, I pray, Lord God, that we would stop covering up, that we would open our hearts up to you and allow you to come and have your way in us and deal with it. I pray that they would find um, friends that they can trust, leaders that they can trust, to begin to work through the issues, small or big, that they would confess if necessary to those that they have sinned against, that would seek forgiveness first of all from you, Lord, and then from those that perhaps that they've hurt. And I pray, Lord God, that you'd begin to release the blessing of being on that path of eternal life, the, 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 the blessing that flows back from heaven in increasing measure into their lives. I pray that in the place of anxiety and guilt, Lord God, would come peace and joy. I pray that in the place of a distant um, cold even relationship with you lord god would come warmth and intimacy again these things i pray in the name of our lord and savior jesus christ amen